0: So I want to be, I want to make one last announcement while I'm being recorded, because I know I'm being recorded now, Uh, and that is, um, if you're a mother, would you please stand up? All right. You can sit down. So uh, happy Mother's Day. Motherhood is, uh, is a big deal. I think it's highly regarded by the heart of God, very highly regarded by the heart of God, honestly much more than our society, and oftentimes even more than the church. And so uh, if you've been here for uh, 364 days or more, you've heard me say this before, um, motherhood is a very cool thing. Uh, Mother's Day reminds us of that, and um, uh, my prayer is that this church will always affirm uh, the role of mothers and appreciate and express appreciation for the roles of mothers and highly value that calling as a very um, uh, sweet gift of the Lord that He allows uh, you guys to be mothers and allows us, the rest of us, to benefit from your role as mothers. And so please, um, as, uh, regardless of what society says as to how important that is, regardless of what the church says as to how important that is, please know that God highly, highly, highly values uh, your roles as mothers. And so um, we appreciate you. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness And we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for these mothers that you've given to us, Lord. And, um, Lord, they've just blessed our lives in so many ways um, beyond what we can count. And so, Lord, we we are thankful for them. And we're thankful also for your word and for your spirit. And we ask that you would guide us now uh, by your spirit as we read your word together. And please just have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 57. Today, Lord willing, we go through 57 through 59, reading chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse through the Bible. This is where we're at. And you can be praying ahead of time, so um, uh, as you probably know, we do an Old Testament book and then we're going to do a New Testament book. Before we went to Isaiah, we left off with Philippians. And so in a few more chapters, a couple weeks, three weeks, whatever, depending on how it works out, we're going to go back to the New Testament. We'll pick up with Colossians, uh, which is an exciting book to read, uh, and so um, you could be praying about that as we look forward to that. All right? Isaiah 57. Isaiah, these chapters we read today... Uh, remind us of our need for God's grace, and we all need God's grace, right? Raise your hand if you're good enough to get into heaven on your own, on your own merit, like if you try real hard, like maybe on a good day, like a good minute, (laughs) right? Nobody is. Nobody is. So, by the way, raise your hand, therefore, if we're all on the same playing field in terms of our own righteousness. Everybody got that? Got that? because no one is more righteous or less righteous than anyone else, right? We are all recipients of God's grace, and we all are very much in need of God's grace. And even as believers, we are daily in need of God's grace, not for salvation, right? But just God's grace to sustain us and uh, to keep us going. And this life is, is is not easy at times. And so, again, we uh, let's review the historical backdrop. The nation of Israel um, uh, in the time in the years before Jesus came, and the nation of Israel was was there in the Promised Land. Uh, they rejected the Lord uh, repeatedly, 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 repeatedly. They were divided. The Northern Kingdom of Israel got carried off by the Assyrian Empire. The Southern Kingdom, uh, the remnant there, the nation of Judah, was carried off captivity into Babylon by the Babylonians in 586 BC. They would be there for 70 years, and then God would by His amazing grace, not because of their righteousness or anything like that, but because of God's grace, God would bring them back to the homeland of Jerusalem and reestablish them as a nation uh, 70 years later. And so, we know that to be true from the pages of history in the Scripture, and yet we also see a lot of lessons along the way. And again, these prophecies... Towards these latter chapters of Isaiah are written primarily to encourage those captives in Babylon as they anticipate uh, the return back to the native homeland, and as they as they um, probably would need some encouragement, right? If you're in Babylon, you're you're captive, you're a slave there. Uh, You know your your nation has been destroyed, your your temple has been destroyed, your people have been destroyed, and you're there wondering where is God right? And sometimes even as believers, we can be kind of like, where is God? He feels far away. We, th- we say things like that. And, and God acknowledges that. And so God writes this, these encouraging words to uh, those folks uh, that apply to our situation in our lives today. But in these chapters we're talking about today, He's going to highlight some things that sound a little bit... Um, Was going to deal with some sin, okay? And sometimes we don't like to deal with sin, right? But have you ever noticed that like when there's, there's, well, let's say when there's conflict, right? Raise your hand if you like working through conflict, if that's fun. If you call that fun. No, we don't call that fun. But it's necessary to get to the other side. Right, And so sometimes we avoid pain so much, we avoid challenge so much, we avoid conflict so much that we, 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 never, we never get to the other side. And so we don't like to say things like sin or talk about things like sin. But I would argue if we're going to live victorious, abundant lives as God has, has desired for us, has got, as God has made available to us, we need to see where those, where those potholes are, if you will, on the path of life. We need to see where those areas are where we can get messed up. We need to see where those areas that might distract us from serving the Lord and living that abundant life, because that's what he wants for us. That's what we want, right? So just as an overview, he's going to talk about the Jewish leaders. They were, they were bad leaders. He's going to talk about pride. He's going to talk about greed. He's going to talk about hypocrisy. He's going to talk about unjust people. Are those things relevant today? Any hypocrisy in the world today? Any injustice in the world today? Any lousy leaders in the world today? Any… That's all we got. Like in the church? Like this church? Oh yeah, except that one awesome leader. Uh, where was I? <laughs> are there any, are there any uh, idolaters in the world today? Yeah, there are, right? And so all these things are super relevant to us. So here we go. Chapter fifty-seven: The righteous perishes, and no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace; that is, the righteous. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in uprightness. And so, just these first couple of verses kind of kind of highlight the uh, the irresponsible leaders of the nation of Israel during that time. Prior to them being carried away captive to Babylon, this section actually started kind of in chapter 56, verse 9, um, talking about Israel's irresponsible leaders. And it's interesting, this is, so this is just finishing up a short section. But again, consider those folks that are captive in Babylon, right? Their leaders had failed to protect the righteous. Their leaders had failed to protect the righteous. I said we, we're going to read Colossians after we finish Isaiah. Well, then after Colossians, we're going to go back and we're going to read Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, we see uh, historically the time basically leading up to the captivity. Uh, when, I mean, Jeremiah is the one saying, the Babylonians are coming, the Babylonians are coming, and everybody's saying, no, they're not, you're full of hot air, no, you're not, no, you're not, no. And, and so, yeah, there you are, no, they're not, no, they are, no, they're not, and so then they come, and Jeremiah gets a front row seat for all of it. Well, Jeremiah was one of the, one of the faithful ones, and it says, the righteous perishes, Jeremiah uh, had a hard life. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, difficulty in this life. And the leadership there, um, they, they basically ridiculed him. He was one of the merciful. He entered into peace, as it says here. And in our day, even if someone is a leader in a church, even, or a nation, or whatever... They, that doesn't automatically entitle them to just do whatever they want. And you've heard me say before, you know, authority is a, is a funny thing. We think of authority as I'm the boss. No, authority means I have a God-ordained responsibility that I need to be super faithful and diligent to adhere to according to the principles of Scripture. It's like an extra job. And, um, and so it's a privilege, but it's a job. And so if we're ever in any kind of position of, of leadership or whatever like that, we need to count it as a, as a privilege, but, a, but certainly a responsibility. Then he moves on to another section here from verse 13 to verse, I'm sorry, verse 3 to verse 13, talking about idolatry. And again, we've talked about idolatry quite a bit here, but we'll highlight some of the, some of the, the key points here. He says, "'But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood?' And so the idolaters here are described as the sons of sorceress, the offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. And God regarded in those days idolatry as really harlotry or adultery, right? Because, think of it as adultery, uh, because uh, the people were basically more in love with their idols than they were with God. And so, you know, it was kind of a betrayal of God's love. And um, we won't go into a lot of detail here, but, you know, another piece of this is a lot of the idolatrous practices that they um, took part in were very immoral, uh, very we'll just say that very immoral. Uh, and also it came, with that came this sense of mockery. Here he says, he says, uh, you guys are the ones that uh, make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue like that, right? And so, you know, idolatry comes, there are a lot of things that come with idolatry. You Ever notice this? There's, <clears throat> with idolatry comes the immoral practices of idolatry, with idolatry comes sort of a smug sense of pride, like, you know, I'm so enlightened that I worship my uh, wooden idol instead of uh, God Almighty who created heaven and earth because I'm so enlightened, right? And, and we have this sort of smug thing going, right? Now, we've said it before, uh, I'll say it again, you know, we don't carve little wooden, you know, images or whatever and put them on our fireplace mantle, but we have our Id- idols, Anything, anything, please hear this, anything that's more important than God Almighty in our lives is an idol. Whether it be a person, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a thing, whether it be a toy, whether it be an ideology, uh, anything that takes preeminence over God in our lives is an idol. And with it comes lots of baggage. Often immorality, often a smug attitude. And so, even though we don't worship the same idols that they did, the principles still apply. Verse 5 inflaming yourself with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They are they they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering, you have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain, you have set up your bed, even there you went up to offer sacrifice, also behind the doors and their posts. You have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed, where the, you saw their nudity. You went to their king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. So again, we're not going to go into a lot of detail into what the exact practices were, but they were nasty. They were immoral. They were horrific. They sacrificed their children. They did, they did just insane things. But here's, again, one of the take-home messages for us. We can look from a different culture, from a different point in time, sort of as outsiders and say, and if I went into a lot of detail with you, uh, but I won't for the sake of sensitivity, but if I went into a lot of detail with you, we would all say, That's crazy. Who in their right mind would participate in that behavior? And the reason that they did was because they were a lot more stupid than we are. No. Because they were doing what was normal for the day. Can I tell you this? I believe if the Lord should tarry, there'll come, let's say the Lord tarries another 500 years. I hope He doesn't, but let's say He does. There'll be some society 500 years from now that'll look back on our society in the early 21st century, and they might say things, and and if they're God-honoring, they might say things like, can you believe they did that? That's crazy. And we'd say, no, it's not. It's normal. Right? There are things we do that are normal that just bef- because they're normal doesn't make them right as a society. Right? And I won't go into all the detail. You, uh, that's between you and the Lord. But let's be very, very, very careful that we're not lulled to sleep in terms of right and wrong. In terms of our standards of behavior, if we're not lulled to sleep by our culture, it is such a. I mean, you can you can look at it, you can look at it since Adam and Eve. The things that people did because that's what everybody's doing, right? And you know, I don't know about you, but when I was in junior high, and I would tell my mother, well, you know, everybody's mother lets them have a motorcycle. didn't work in my house, (laughs) right? And it shouldn't work just because everybody's mother lets them do that, right? And so these people participated in gross, gross immorality, gross behavior because it was normal. Beware of normal. Beware of normal. Verse 10, you are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there's no hope. You have, you have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. So this is so normal that you just kind of had this false sense of security, right? You, were, you, you weren't even, you know, who, who are you afraid of? Who, are you, who, who have you feared? You not remembered me. You're not really worried because you have this false sense of security because it's normal. We can live normal stuff. We can, be, we can live lives completely contrary to Scripture and feel okay sometimes because it's normal. Be careful. Be careful. Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 11. And of who have you been afraid or feared? You have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to heart. Is it not because I have held my peace from of old, that you do not fear me, right? And so, you know, the problem with idolatry, among other things, is that it causes people to trust in other things besides God. And notice here, God doesn't always force himself on us, right? I know God is sovereign and all of that. I understand that. But, you know, he says here, is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? Is it because, God would say, because I don't kick and scream, is that why you don't fear me? Do I have to kick and scream in order for you to fear me? Well, no. We should, we should love God. We should fear God. We should respect God because he's been so good to us, not because he kicks and screams. He goes on, verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them, but he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And so, you know, notice here, when the day of trouble comes, and the day of trouble always comes in some capacity or another, but when the day of trouble comes, oftentimes, you know, God will say, uh, hey, when uh, your trouble comes, then cry out to those idols, let your collection of idols be the ones to deliver you and take good care of you. And honestly, I think this is very relevant for today. Very relevant today. Our sense of normal life, even here in 2021, right, we're on the, you know, uh, you know, the virus is not what it was uh, even a few months ago. And so now, now we're all wanting to get back to what? normal. We all want to get back to normal. We all want to resume normal. All right. Did that do something weird with the recording? That's normal. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'll come back. Uh-huh. If you've been, if you were still watching and you were worried, was that the rapture? (laughs) Are we back on? Yeah. I'm still being recorded on some things. Okay. So what do we want to do? Just keep going with the podcast? Huh? Keep Keep going. All right, we'll keep going. Um, so if you're watching on Facebook or if you're trying to watch on Facebook and, and like, we're not there, okay, let me just say the rapture didn't happen because we're all still here, but you never know. <laughs> Could happen in another 12 minutes. And I am serious about war 2 I'm serious about that. You know, maybe this is a relevant time because the, I don't know. Maybe we should play an audible right now, but here's the deal. One day, Scripture's very clear. One day, without a big announcement, in the twinkling of an eye, boom. Every Christian, and I believe this could happen at any time, all the prophetic groundwork has been laid for this to happen. But one day, in a twinkling of an eye, boom, every Christian on planet Earth is gone, is gone. Now, you, you may say, if you're listening to me or if you're in the sound of my voice, you may say, that can't be true because that doesn't seem very normal, <laughs> to which I just address that, I hope. Yeah. But if the scripture is true, if it's real, if it's believable, which it is and it can be studied and verified and authenticated and all of that, if it's true then one day, and I believe potentially one day very soon, boom, twinkling of an eye, we who are here on earth at that time will meet Jesus in the air. It won't be long we're going to get to Thessalonians. I'm kind of itch, I'm kind of trying to get you know it, it, yes why do you do three chapters of Isaiah a week because I want to the get to Thessalonians that's my bottom line yeah. so but in the twinkling of an eye we're going to be gone yeah. we're going to meet Jesus in the air we're going to go up and we're going to be with him in heaven for a period, during a period of seven years of what's called the great tribulation on planet earth. I tell you this while I'm being recorded because hopefully my recording of this, my voice today will be hanging around, Lord willing, after I'm gone. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who said, you know, my aunt Betty, who's always seemed pretty weird, who seemed to preach a lot, she disappeared and I'm still here. That's creepy. Maybe I should break out my Bible and read the words that Aunt Betty read. So if you are listening to me and that's a future time, it's kind of a twilight zone feeling, don't you think? Right now, I would suggest you read 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 15. I would suggest you read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and I would suggest you read the book of Revelation because you're going to see those words literally play out. Literally play out. You say, "Well, why are they going to play out literally?" Well, I'm not that smart. I ask myself, how do they play out literally, how do they play out when Jesus came the first time? You've heard me say this before, but I'm saying it again. It said Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. Was he born of a virgin? Yes. Yeah. It wasn't some kind of metaphorical kind of uh, virgin spirit thing. No, it was a virgin human being, right? Says so he's going to be born in Bethlehem, right? Who comes from Bethlehem, right? Everybody knows all the actions in Jerusalem, but why would he be born in Bethlehem? Because the Bible said he would be, right? He's going, to be, he's going to be a Nazarene. Why is he going to be from a Nazarene? I thought you said he's born in Bethlehem. Well, God works that all out. He's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be a descendant of Abraham. He's going to be from the line of Judah. All of these things on and on and on and on were fulfilled very literally the first time, and I believe they will be the second time. Isaiah chapter 57. Your idols will not profit you in the day of trouble. Can I tell you this? If anybody finds themselves hanging around when a bunch of people, including Aunt Betty, just disappeared, that's a bad day to reach for your idols and start like rubbing them, rubbing your genie lamp or doing whatever it is you do, burning incense to your idols. That's a bad day to start burning incense to your idols. That's a day to fall on your face and cry out to God Almighty who created you. And ask him for his grace, which he will give, which he will give. Your idols don't deliver during difficult times. And again, I I think this is so relevant for today. Because over over the last year, we've seen that normal doesn't deliver us. And with all due respect, political policy will not deliver us. Vaccines will not deliver us. Even if, you know, vaccines are safe and effective, that's a whole other dialogue. If vaccines are safe and effective, they might temporarily alleviate a symptom of a deeper problem, but they won't deliver us. They don't deliver us from our most basic need, and that is we're sinners, destined to hell apart from the grace of God. No vaccine is going to take you to heaven. No restored job is going to take you to heaven. No stimulus check is going to take you to heaven. No public policy will take you to heaven. They will not profit you. Your idols will not profit you. When you cry out, you let your collection of idols deliver you, it's not going to work. The wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But that's the bad news. But, whenever you have bad news in the Bible, it's going to be followed by a but. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. God loves to deliver humble people. He loves to deliver his children. Verse 14 to 21 address now uh, those who are full of pride and those who are motivated by greed and uh, God was dealing with them, Uh, that was part of what he was dealing with when he took them into captivity, to show them uh, the futility of their pride and their greed. Verse 14, and one shall, say, one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. And so this heap it up, some commentators say, you know, they were kind of taking the stumbling blocks out of the path, the, basically the path from Babylon back to, to Jerusalem. You know, they're kind, of, they're kind of building up a road so there's a smooth path uh, because God always brings, uh, makes a, a path back for, to him, a path to fellowship with him. He always makes that available to us. And so this is a picture of what they were doing as they came back from Babylon. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a humble and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so God loves to pick up humble people and, look at this, dwell with them. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a humble and contrite spirit. God loves, God loves to dwell with His humble children. His idolatrous children who think they're so enlightened that they can be smug at Him and have a, and and look down their nose at God. By the way, I can't look down my nose at God. Can anyone look down their nose at God? No. People try to, but God loves to dwell in the high and holy place with Him who has a contrite and humble spirit. And he loves to revive the spirit of the humble. First Peter chapter five, verse five and six says this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. He's going to exalt. He's going to literally take us up, exalt us, lift us up. He's going to literally take us up to heaven. By the way, I said that uh, we'll be up in heaven with Him after the rapture of the church, during that time of great tribulation. And then, I, I didn't finish it, then we come back with Him to earth after that seven-year period of tribulation. He sets up a thousand-year reign on, heaven, uh, on earth where we reign and rule with Him. We have the privilege of, of reigning with Him for a thousand years in a utopian Garden of Eden kind of a world where He rules. And then Satan is released for a brief time, and then there's final judgment, heaven and hell. That's the, that's the timeline. So kind of, it helps us to kind of keep the timeline in our minds. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Can I ask you this? Do you feel the need to be revived today? Do you feel discouraged and your discouragement needs to be revived and restored? Do you feel weary and your weariness needs to be revived and restored? And honestly, I'm seeing this all the time as I interface with society in our day. We have a... We live in a desperate world right now. And I believe God has placed us on this world for such a time as this because the world is desperate right now. The world is desperate for a revival. The world is discouraged. The world, honestly, even the secular world, I believe, is realizing how frail we really are. How frail we really are. And that's why they're so freaked out about it. That's why they're so freaked out about a virus. I mean, I don't, I, no disrespect. The virus is real. The virus uh, has caused a lot of problems. And I, uh, that's, that's tough. But we live in a world where people are freaked out. We live in a world where people are freaked out about the environment. We live in a world where people are freaked out about the economy. And they're realizing that those things can't really sustain themselves. Is our world vulnerable, is our, I mean, okay, talk about the environment for a second. Is our, regardless of what you believe on the the environment, right, is planet Earth in and of itself, if there were no God, vulnerable? Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? I mean, just hanging. I mean, I'm not a physicist, but it's just like hanging in the middle of the sky in the midst of everything, right? It's vulnerable. If it's not held together by God, we'll get, about, get that in Colossians. God holds that together, right? It's vulnerable. Our world is vulnerable. Vulnerable. Our world and, our, and the people in this world need revival. So you know what we need to do? We need to rent a big tent, rally up together, hire the best speaker, pay him whatever it costs, and have ourselves a good old-fashioned revival. Is that how it works? Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, right? But really what he's talking about in these in the context of these verses is he's talking about having a contrite and humble spirit and letting Him do that work of revival in our hearts. Doesn't that sound a lot less man-made than us making it happen? The most reviving thing today we can do is humbly seek the Lord and ask Him to take good care of us and trust that He will. And it's a process. It's not like, oh, I feel better necessarily. Sometimes it is, right? But he loves to revive the spirit of the humble. He loves to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He says, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. And so, you know, he's saying, I I was angry, and that's why I sent my people off to Babylon, but I won't be that way forever. So, you know, there's there's restoration. There's God's punishment, but there's also restoration. I've seen His ways and will heal Him. I will also lead Him and restore comforts to Him and to His mourners. And so, you know, this is really the heart of God. God has seen our ways. He says, I have seen His ways, and yet I will heal Him. God doesn't wait till we're all put back together. God doesn't wait till we put ourselves back together in order to heal us. He doesn't say, I tell you what, your your sins have, have separated you from me. I'll meet you halfway. He doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. He does all the work. We just have to humbly call out to him. But he said, I've seen his ways. I know he's a sinner and I will heal him. And I will lead him, and I will restore comforts to him. Isn't that a great promise? And to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is afar off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so God creates peace for those who are willing to accept it. But he says there's no peace for the wicked. That's the person that refuses to accept God's peace. He says here, notice here, he says, uh, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 say, says, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we, ha- we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus came from heaven to earth and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. And through him, we have access by one Holy Spirit to God the Father. What a beautiful picture. Chapter 58 kind of extends this idea a little bit, uh, speaking specifically now to hypocrites, right? Right? Any hypocrites in the world? Yep, there are hypocrites in the world. Uh, can we be hypocritical if we're not careful? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, can we be hypocritical in our worship of the Lord if we're not careful? Yeah, for sure. Can we be hypocritical in doing our Christian thing if we're not careful? Yeah, we can, to be sure. How does our Christian thing work? I mean, we all have our Christian thing, right? And we all have various flavors of our Christian thing, right? You might like this song, and I might like this song. You might uh, put a fish on your bumper sticker. I might be afraid because I drive too fast to put a fish on my bumper sticker, and so I do something else. And you might do your thing this way, and I might do my thing this way. But we all sort of have our Christian thing, right? You might have... Anyway, we all have our Christian thing. But here's the point. Our Christian thing must be an outflow of our love for God. Otherwise, it's just an empty Christian thing. And God's not interested in our empty Christian thing. And this has been a problem throughout the ages. Right? It was a problem in those days. In those days, they had people, and, you know, no doubt this is the example that he gives here, is they were fasting. They would pray and fast. But they did it as their religious thing, right? Their lives, and God's going to point out in this chapter, their lives didn't reflect uh, a, a, a desire to serve Him. Their lives didn't reflect integrity and justice and, and compassion and all those things that should go along with prayer and fasting. Their lives testified to the fact that it was just a, their religious thing. And let me just tell us, whether it's prayer and fasting or whether it's you know anything, Be careful. Be careful about your Christian thing just being the Christian thing. Because our Christian thing can quickly become our identity. Well, who are you? I'm a Christian. Well, why? Well, because I listen to Caleb. Except during the fundraising month, I turn it off. (laughs) Right? Well, who are you? I'm a Christian. Why? Well because I go to church every Sunday. Well who are you? I'm a Christian. Why? Because I quit cussing when I was eight years old. Who are you? Well, I'm a Christian. Why? Well, because I got water baptized when I was I forget. So they told me. (laughs) Right? How about who are you? I'm a Christian. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And I know what that means. And I know that Jesus Christ died for me. And I want to spend the rest of my life saying thank you however I can. And if it affects the music I listen to, so be it. If it affects what I say, so be it. If it affects where I'm at on Sunday morning, so be it. If it affects what I do day by day, yes, that's just an outflow of the fact that I realize I need a Savior, and His name is Jesus, and He has saved me, and I'm on my way to heaven. And you know what? One of the things the world is freaked out about, I told you about all the things the world is freaked out about, one of the things they're freaked out about is that guys like me keep saying, one of these days in the twinkling of an eye... We're going to be gone, right? I mean, if I wasn't sure about my, where my place was, that would kind of freak me out when guys like me talk about that stuff, right? I'd probably call them, I'd have some name for him, some politically correct name for guys like me, right? Our Christian thing is an outflow of our love for Jesus Christ period. So their Christian thing was, or their religious thing, their Jewish thing was, yeah, let's pray and fast and see how that works out. So he says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. So God's telling Isaiah, tell the people this is what's wrong. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinances of of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. So it seems like they're doing everything right in a sense, right? They're seeking the Lord. You know, they're doing the... Ordinances. They're approaching God. They're fasting. Uh, they're, quote unquote, afflicting their souls. They're doing all these things, but it seems like all their prayers are falling on deaf ears. Now, we need to leave room. I've t- said this before. We need to leave room for the fact that God doesn't always answer prayers like we think he should, right? If we ask for a new car, we don't get a new car, that may be God just knows what's better for us than our new car, okay? So there's that thing, but there's also this idea that sometimes God doesn't answer prayers because we're praying like this. They're fasting and praying, but they're living for pleasure, and they're exploiting other people. Look there in verse, uh, at the end of verse 3, in fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers, Right? well, that's not, that's hypocritical. That's hypocritical, and God doesn't, um, and so God's not going to answer their prayers in the way they, they want or they expect. He goes on, indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness, yet you will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. So you're not fasting so I'll hear you. You're fasting so you can promote your own agenda. Does that sound familiar? Do we have an agenda as Christians? Is sometimes our Christian thing promoting and pushing our agenda? Yeah, yeah. And it really should be, again, an outflow of our love for the Lord. We've got to be very careful about all these things. Whenever we do our Christian stuff in the context of selfishness, it's like asking God to endorse our selfishness. And of course he's not going to do that. Not only is that insulting to him, But we shouldn't be surprised when he doesn't answer us as we think he should. Verse five: Is it is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? And so you know, God's not interested in empty religion then or now. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the heavy burdens to let the oppressed go free that you may break and that you break every yoke. And so these things are what happen in response to sincere prayer and fasting from humility, from the contrite heart that he's talking about. What happens when those things happen? Not not when we're promoting our agenda and living selfishly. But when we are humbly seeking the Lord what does he like to do? Breaks the bonds of wickedness. Would you like to see brick wickedness broken down in our world today? There's a lot of wickedness. And frankly, there are a lot of human beings that are victims of wickedness. How does that play out and why does, why does God allow that? I don't know. God's bigger than I am and he understands those things better than I do. But there's a lot of wickedness in our world. And I talk to people all the time that are victims of that wickedness and I, my heart breaks for them. But when we pray and fast the way God says, he's going to break the bonds of wickedness. He's going to undo heavy burdens, right? We carry burdens, heavy burdens. He's going to relieve the oppressed, and he's going to restore justice. Isn't that great? Don't we want to see those things happen today? You bet we do. Then we need to serve him with sincerity. If we want to see those things happen today, we need to serve him with sincerity. Verse seven, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, right? If you're not, if you're not eating today, guess what? You got extra bread, right? Share it with the hungry. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to the, your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and do not hide yourself from your own flesh? Not only do we have extra bread if we're fasting, right? We're suddenly taking our minds off of ourselves and we suddenly see the needs of others you know there's a there's a critical opportunity i believe in our day i keep you know and again this is heavy on my heart if we just open our eyes a little bit to what other people are going through and pause long enough to say you know what's going on and to hear their hearts it, it'll bring us to our knees It'll bring us to our knees. It'll make us aware of what other people's needs are. It'll, it'll give us, uh, God will use that to give us opportunity to tell us how to pray. And we'll stop praying for our own new car and we'll start praying for these other people's needs. And that's what he's looking for. Then... Your light shall break forth like the morning, verse 8. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rearguard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. So you see this? The difference in sort of the first paragraph of this chapter and what I just read, right? The first paragraph, hey, we're, we're praying, we're fasting, and we feel like we're falling on deaf ears. Our prayers are falling on deaf ears. God's not there. God's not answering. God's not doing anything. But, oh, by the way, I'm living selfishly. I'm entertaining myself. All I care about is my own pleasure, and I'm exploiting others. These verses, verse 8 and 9, you know, when you, when you pray with humility as an outflow of your heart for the Lord, your love for the Lord, and you have compassion on, on the hungry and the needy and, and uh, the naked, and you stop thinking about yourself so much, guess what's going to happen? Then your light's going to break forth like the morning. Healing's going to come. You, then your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You'll call, and I'm not going to be silent. You will call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. Here I am. Right? Here I am. Amen. If you take away the yoke from your midst, stop burdening other people with your selfishness, and look at this. Stop the pointing of the finger. Ouch, that's a little convicting, don't you think? Stop pointing the finger. You know, it's their, pro- it's their fault. right? All of, our so- all of our social ills today, it's their fault. If you're Republican, it's the Democrats' fault. If you're a Democrat, it's, well, it's Trump's fault. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're somebody, it's their fault. And if you're somebody else, it's their fault. And if you're there, it's their fault. And, you know, maybe if we stop pointing the finger, and maybe if we stop speaking wickedness, maybe we'll find ourselves praying and hearing God say, here I am. What do you want? Right? If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Don't we want that? and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Look at this. If we humbly come to the Lord, not as a religious act, but as a, as an outflow of our love for him and our appreciation for him, all these things he'll start doing. He'll start answering our prayer. He'll start taking care of us. He'll be our, uh, he'll be our guide and and he'll be our rear guard. And if we extend our soul to the hungry and if we have compassion for other people, and if we start taking our eyes off of ourselves, then we're going to see all these things happen. The Lord is going to guide us continually. He's going to satisfy our soul in drought. He 's going to strengthen our bones. we 're going to be like a water garden. we 're going to be fruitful. We're going to be like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Basically, we 're going to have abundant life. Amen. Here's the paradox: If I go through this life, taking good care of me, i 'm going to take good care of me i'm going to preserve my rights i 'm going to you know keep those evil politicians from getting into into my space and i'm going to take good care of me and i'm going to and i'm going to you know do all this and along the way i'm going to make sure i'm nice and religious so that way i feel secure before god right and i'm gonna and i'm doing all that right stuff right at the end of the day i am miserable i'm frustrated are there any frustrated christians today on the other hand, if I say, Lord, I can't believe you would come and die for me. Because I know what it means to be a sinner. Amen. I don't deserve for my man to be in office or my person to be in office. I don't deserve any favors. I don't deserve uh, what I act like I deserve sometime. And I know, Lord, that you died for me, and that's, that's good enough. That's totally good enough. And I appreciate it so much. And, and Lord... Lord, I recognize the needs of people around me and I want to, Lord, I want to, would you please help me to see beyond myself enough to be sensitive to the needs of others and to have compassion and to pray for those people and to reach out to them. And if, if I've got an extra loaf of bread and they need a loaf of bread, maybe even give them a loaf of bread. And, and Lord, can you help me? Can you give me those opportunities, Lord? Do you think you'd answer that prayer? Absolutely would. Lord, would you please send those people my way? And would you please help me to have a a heart of of mercy and compassion for them? And let that be an outflow of my love for you. You know what that's called? It's called abundant life. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And it starts with taking our eyes off ourselves and feeling like we're righteous in and of ourselves. He's talking about a humble and contrite spirit. He's talking about religious our religion being an outflow of our love for God not religiosity in itself. By the way, the world can't stand that. The world can't stand empty religion. God can't stand it, but the world can't stand it either. And that may be, you know well, maybe that's a that's a tangent, <laughs> but I'm pretty good at tangents. <laughs> uh, have you ever noticed the church is not particularly effective at impacting the world in the last 20, 30 years? Right? Look at the numbers. Look at the statistics. Has the church, in, has the church influenced the world so that, you know, we look more like the church? Or has the world influenced the church so that we look more like the world? we're looking more like the world. The church is anemic. And I believe one of the reasons is that we're all about empty religion. We love our Christian radio stations. No, no disrespect to Caleb. We love our Christian radio stations. We love our Christian thing. We love our Christian culture. And if we're not careful, that becomes its own idolatry. I can't tell you how many people I come into contact with about the church, for example. Oh, I love my church. Man, we're doing this and we're doing that. They mention everything. They talk about everything except the Lord. I love, you know, I love church because I get to teach Sunday school, teach the kids. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's good. But only if it's an outflow of your love for the Lord, right? I think we have a lot of, I think let's just be careful about empty religion i've probably said enough about that <laughs> verse 13 if you turn away your foot from the sabbath so this was another religious thing they did they were all about the sabbath you know from the days of jesus they were way all about the sabbath but if you turn your foot turn away your foot from the sabbath from doing my pleasure on uh, doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the sabbath a delight the holy day of the lord honorable and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, same principles apply. He's just talking about their honor of the Sabbath as a religious thing. Um, So the same principles all apply. Chapter 59 briefly says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. And I wanted to read this chapter in context of these others because this really speaks to those things, right? God can hear our prayers. If God's silent, it's not his fault. It's not because his arm is shorter than it was, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the, the length of the arm of the Lord, in a sense, is a picture of, of what he's capable of doing, right? It's not like he can part the Red Sea, he can do this, he can raise Jesus from the dead, but he can't fix my problem right? The, the, the arm of the Lord is not any shorter than it's ever been. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Can he save us? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. Is he capable of hearing us? Absolutely. Does his ear work? Yeah. Yes, it does. So if it seems like his arm is shortened and it seems like he can't save us, and if it seems like he's deaf, is it his problem? No. no but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear that for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. So can you see this? Our sins, not God's ability. Our sins do separate us from God in a sense. Now let me just pause for a second. Psalm 139, you may re- remember, we've read it before. Uh, David says, hey, where can I go from your presence? Where can we go from God's presence? Nowhere. Nowhere. Ask, ask Jonah, right? You can't, go, you can't escape God's presence, right? We cannot escape God's presence. So it's not like our sins separate us from God's presence. That's encouraging. That should be comforting. We can't be separated from God's love. Can anything separate us from God's love? Romans chapter 8, verse 39. This is a beautiful verse to anchor onto. Romans Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, including my own sin, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our sin can separate us from fellowship with God. It can separate us from a healthy prayer life with God, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. Don't ever forget that. God is always there for our return, but our sin can separate us from fellowship with God. Verse 4, no one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. So these guys are so full of sin, they had difficulty discerning truth from lies. Do we have difficulty today discerning truth from lies? Are these chapters from Isaiah relevant? (laughs) Way. Discerning truth from lies, that's, that's a whole other story. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of the, their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, the viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are workers of, are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. And so, you know, when our lives are full of sin, like what these guys are doing, is like they're a bunch of vipers hatching viper eggs, more, making more vipers, right? That's kind of an awful picture, but it's there, right? Verse 7, their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting, and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes their way shall not know peace. And this kind of dovetails on the last verse of chapter 57, which we read earlier. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace. You know, when we run to evil when we make haste to shed innocent blood, when our thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, guess what? We're going to find wasting and destruction in our path, and we're going to find everything but peace. We are not going to find peace. Sin may seem fun for a time, for a season. It might look good on Instagram, but it doesn't bring peace. Remember, grace brings peace. All those letters of Paul start out, Grace and peace. Grace always goes first, and they're always tied together. Amen. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace causes peace. Sin, we might think causes fun. We might even think it causes peace. But there is, this is a promise of Scripture, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Period. Period. And you can't undermine the pages of Scripture. You can't, you can't test God and find, his, find the error in His Scripture by trying to be wicked and finding peace. It does not work. It does not work. Verse 9, Therefore, Sin is, therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there's darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like, a, like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We strumb, stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are de- as dead men in desolate places. Guess what? If we walk in sin, we're going to find ourselves stumbling. We're going to find ourselves bumping into brick walls because it's like walking in the darkness. Verse 11, we all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. So really, this is the same concepts as we've read the last two chapters. We all want blessing. We all want God to take good care of us. We all want justice, at least for ourselves. We all want salvation but we need to realize that our sin separates us from fellowship with God, answered prayers, and all those things. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off, for truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter, so truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So injustice brings consequence. But look at this. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Look at this. This is totally messianic. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. This is a great, and that's why I wanted to get to this point, right? Right? just as we wind down. Is sin a problem in the world? Is there a lot of sin in the world? Is there, are, do we struggle with our own sin? Yeah. Do we live in a frail world? Yes. Do we need the Lord? Yes. Do we need God's grace? Yes. And, and even in that, he says, the Lord saw that the world was broken. The, the Lord saw that I was broken and it displeased him. And he saw that there was no man, no intercessor, nobody that could pray for me or for you adequately, right? No perfect sacrifice that could stand in the gap. Therefore, his own, bro- his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness, it sustained him. God himself became the sacrifice. God himself became the solution to our problem. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to earth to fix the problem. He put on, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate, speaking of Jesus, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. According to, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Jesus because He set things in order, right? Because He died on a cross for for each and every one of us, and He offers salvation to each and every one of us, therefore we have that choice to receive it or not. And ultimately, justice will be restored, ultimately in in the millennial kingdom, I said, after He comes back. He goes on, the Redeemer will come to Zion. This is when he comes back after the tribulation. And to those who return from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord, as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. That's a great promise we have to look forward to. So, when God's people live in idolatry, when they live in pride, greed, religious hypocrisy, injustice, they shouldn't be surprised when God seems far away and God doesn't seem to answer their prayers or even hear their prayers, right? However, even in the midst of that, what is God calling us to do? Is God calling us to be champions and rally our rally the troops and, and all of that. No. God's calling us to humbly come before him. Yeah. He makes everything else available. He works, he provides everything else. All he wants from us is to humbly come before him and seek him. If we do a religious thing as a result of that, great. If we show up at church because of that, great. If we read our word read his word Because we're going to know. As soon as as I start realizing, I I don't have the answers, but I realize he does. Guess what? It's going to give me a hunger for his word. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to devour it. The more I realize that. And he loves to bless. He loves to say, here I am when we pray. And he loves to bless humble, contrite children. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you provide the way of salvation, and you also provide the way of abundant life here on earth. And Lord, even as crazy as this world seems, or as crazy as it will ever seem, abundant life is available to each and every person who humbly seeks you. Lord, we take tremendous comfort in that, and we ask you to make us into those people by your grace. Have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody, have an awesome, awesome week.